Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, we have been reading uh, about David's life together from the books of First and Second Samuel. And for the last three weeks, uh, we have talked about David's fall and uh, the consequences that started to spin out because of it. And this morning, we're going to talk about the things that Second Samuel uh, tells us happened over the next seven to ten years of David's life, culminating in the conspiracy against him by his son Absalom. So I'm going to read uh, about that for us from 2 Samuel 15. You can uh, follow along where it's printed in the order of worship. After this, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. And Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate. And when any man had a dispute to come before the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, from what city are you? And when he said, your servant is of such and such a tribe in Israel, Absalom would say to him, see, your claims are good and right, but there is no man designated by the king to hear you. Then Absalom would say, oh, that I were a judge in the land. Then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me and I would give him justice. And whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. Thus Absalom did to all of Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. And a messenger came to David saying, the hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. Then David said to all of his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, arise and let us flee or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. Go quickly, lest he overtake us quickly, and bring down ruin on us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. And all his servants passed by him, and all the Cherethites and all the Pelethites and the 600 Gittites who had followed him from Gath passed on before the king. Then the king said to Ittai, the Gittite, why do you also go with us? Go back and stay with the king, for you are a foreigner and also an exile from your home. You came only yesterday, and shall I today make you wander about with us? Since I go, I know not where. Go back and take your brothers with you, and may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you. But Ittai answered the king, as the Lord lives and as my lord the king lives, wherever my lord the king shall be, whether for death or for life, there also will your servant be. And David said to Atai, go then, pass on. So Atai the Gittite passed on with all his men and all the little ones who were with him. And all the land wept aloud as all the people passed by. And the king crossed the brook of Kidron and all the people passed on toward the wilderness. But David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot and with his head covered. And all the people who were with him covered their heads, and they went up, weeping as they went. This is God's word, and it's given for our good. Let me pray for us. Father, we ask uh, that you would use this story uh, that we just read and heard together that can seem uh, to us uh, to feel very much like something that happened to somebody else and in someplace else a long time ago, that you, would, that you would be happy to make this alive to us now in this present moment, that you would speak to us through it, 
in whatever condition we find ourselves this morning, that you would show us the grace of Jesus again and change us by it. And we ask this in his name. Amen. Well, last week, uh, Allison and I were driving together. We were on the Kimball Avenue, kind of near the highway. And uh, while we were waiting in traffic, this red uh, sports car um, blew by us and, and blew by the whole line of traffic that we were sitting in. Um, and that sports car blew by on the right shoulder. Um, <clears throat> and when this driver got to the next light, he kind of inched out into the intersection and he blew that red light. Um, well, in the beautiful way that city traffic works, he was uh, stymied at the next red light at Addison and he had to wait like all of the normal people around him. And I have to admit that it's tempting when I see stuff like that to get kind of angry and to blow my top. But over the years, uh, Allison and I have started saying little phrases to each other in moments like that when we see stuff like that. These phrases, I think, diffuse some of the frustration. They uh, afford us a chance to laugh it off. When we see something like that, we say, oh, that guy's a VIP. The normal rules do not apply to him. And I gotta admit, uh, this is exactly what I thought. And it's exactly what I felt when I read that blustery line at the beginning of the story that we just read together, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. I thought, oh, that guy, that guy's a VIP. And you got to know that given the size of Jerusalem at the time, given the terrain of Jerusalem at the time, this is an incredibly absurd thing to do. For Absalom to do this would be like putting on a bumpy circus parade everywhere that he went. And this crown prince is running this little carnival for four years under David's nose. And David doesn't do a thing about it. And that fact, David's negligence, is at the heart of the story that we just read together. And it is at the heart of all that has happened in his life over the last several years. And I think that it's good for us um, to take a hard look at that negligence so that maybe we can learn something from it, so that maybe we can be pointed towards hope ourselves. So all of this begins, of course, with uh, David's adultery and the murderous cover-up that followed it. We talked a bunch about that. We talked three weeks about that. And so we know that one of the things that Nathan the prophet had told David was a consequence of what he had done would be that the sword would never leave David's house. David had carried violence over the threshold of his house and into his home. And now that violence is simply going to be part of his family. And it is precisely this, it is, it is exactly this that is horribly borne out in the life of David's family over the next several years. One of uh, David's sons, Amnon, sexually assaulted his half-sister, Tamar. And when David finds out about this, when David finds out that this has happened, the storyteller says that he was very angry, but shockingly, he did absolutely nothing about it. Not a thing. 
We aren't told why he does nothing. But sadly, this neglect is not isolated in David's life. Meanwhile, over the course of the next two years, David's other son, Absalom, one of his other sons, conceives and carries out a plot to avenge Tamar by killing Amnon. And he pulls this plot off. And, and when Absalom pulls it off, he runs to Jerusalem, or when, runs away from Jerusalem. He goes into exile for three years in another place. And again, we're told when David hears what's happened, when David hears about the death of his one son and the exile of his other son, he wept bitterly and he mourned. We're even told by the storyteller that he longed to go out to Absalom. But instead, what he actually did was nothing. He did nothing. You know, as readers, when we hear this and when we, when we come across this, you know, we want him to do something. <laughs> we want him to do anything to repair his family, to do something, to say something. I mean, anything, anything in this world would be better than this neglect. I mean, this is David. David, with all of his formidable power, with all of his talent and skill, but he sits on his hands. And it's hard to know why. David has to be manipulated into letting Absalom back into Jerusalem. And once he's back, David won't even see him for two full years. And this brings us to Absalom's chariot and horses and the 50 men that run around in front of him. Absalom has decided either during exile away from his father or back in Jerusalem for those two years being snubbed by his father, Absalom has decided to steal the kingdom away from his dad. Even though killing Amnon had made him the next in line for the throne, he is unwilling to wait, and so he begins his conspiracy. And the first step in that conspiracy is to look kingish. And that's what that VIP chariot feeder is all about. He's trying to look kingish. Um, but the long game is to slowly undercut his father's standing in the hearts and minds of the people. And so Absalom does this by standing at the gate of the city every morning and looking out for travelers who have come to Jerusalem to ask the king to adjudicate their cases. When they arrive, when these travelers arrive, Absalom won't let them pay homage uh, as they would normally to the crown prince. Instead, he reaches out his hand and he pulls them in to hug it out. He gives them this big kiss of greeting. He wants them to think that he is just like them, that their concerns are just like his concerns. And Absalom, old Absalom, never met a plaintiff he did not like. He would tell everyone, your claims are good, your claims are right. And he would bemoan the backlog of cases, and he would say, if only there was someone who could hear your case, but there's no one. I'll tell you what, if I was the judge in the land, then everyone would get the justice that they deserved. Absalom is a classic demagogue, calculating and cynical and ruthless. And you know when you hear it and when you read it like this, it seems so tired and so cliche and so transparent 
but it worked because it often works. And you know, we uh, as a culture, we as a people, we often kid ourselves and we say to ourselves that we don't necessarily need leaders who are decent people. We just need them to be strong leaders. But here are six verses from 2 Samuel to remind us that that is naive and that that ignores the moral context in which leadership always takes place. But the larger point is that this very obvious and transparent subversion takes place for four years under David's watch, and he doesn't do a thing about it. So I want to say a couple of things about that. First, it's, it's a bigger picture thing. It's the whole story considered. What I want to say first is that when we sin, other people get hurt. When we sin, other people get hurt. Sin is never confined to the time and the place in, in which it happens. I mean, think about it. Just think about this. David was out for a walk one afternoon on his roof, and now here we are. His son is openly undercutting his authority. His son is destabilizing an entire nation. His family is in tatters. Debasement, fratricide, regicide, who knows what else is going on in David's family. There is something powerful about the ecology of sin that is never content to do damage just in one place. And you don't need to be a theologian to get this or believe it because history and common sense bear it out too. And so church, I hope that you and I can't read a story like this and not think about that for ourselves. And church, this is why the renewing grace of Jesus in our lives is so, so good. And this is why uh, we desperately and thoroughly and deeply need the re renewing grace of Jesus in our lives. Because through his death and resurrection and ascension, he, he forgives our sins. But he also works to make us look more like him. <laughs> he works by his spirit to help us put away old, harmful, hurtful habits and practices and to put on new and redemptive habits and practices. In other words, Jesus helps us to not hurt people. And our responsibility in this is to stay close to him. It is to abide with him. And we do that by the means of grace. We do that by worshiping together we do that through the sacraments, we do that through reading scripture, and we do that through prayer. This is how we abide with Jesus and stay close to him, through worship together, and the sacraments, and scripture reading, and prayer. Let's not neglect those things, church, because they lead us to life and to health in Jesus. He uses them to change people like us. He changes us into people like uh, Paul, the apostle, described in the New Testament lesson, people who love with affection, 
people who outdo one another in showing honor, people who have no appetite to hurt others. Let's not forget these things. Let's abide with him. The second thing I want to talk about when we think of this neglect is to talk about David as a father. I promise you I did not intentionally time this sermon to be on Father's Day, but here we are. David has not been a good father. And Scripture does not flinch about that. It is plain and it is obvious. And it has led to a tremendous amount of heartache. Now, listen, as, as kings go, as kings go, he has shown himself to be pretty great. I mean, as kings go, uh, he has been a great king. He oversaw a small empire with, with all of his magnetism and all of his uh, charisma, with that deep checklist of skills and talents and abilities. He oversaw a small empire and crushed it as a king. You know, we sang a song that David wrote this morning. It was our opening him. We sing a song that David wrote almost every week when we worship together. Church, I want to tell you that every second of every day, somebody somewhere is singing a song that David wrote or chanting it or praying it. And this cannot be denied. His influence is significant and deep and meaningful. But none of that, church, none of that gives him a pass as a parent. None of it. And so what I want to say to myself first is that no one's public life, no one's work, no one's vocation, no matter how good it might be, no matter how beneficial it might be, gives anyone a pass on loving and caring for those who are closest and most intimate to them. Any way, church, any way of living and being that splits those things apart, that says, I have a private life and I have a public life. I have the way that I am with my family and my friends and the way that I am with the rest of the world. Any way of living and being that splits those things apart or plays those things off of one another, it is just pretending. And it is the worst kind of pretending that we can do because it brings pain and it brings heartache. And so we have to reject it <laughs> and we have to run from it. And the further in our rear view mirror that way of approaching life is, that double-minded approach, the further that is away from us, the more whole we will be. And the more we will be able to love those closest to us. And the more we will actually be able to work for the life of the world. So after four long years, Absalom finally starts his coup. His coup involves a trip to Hebron and, and, and special messengers sent throughout the country, spies, it involves the defection of one of David's closest advisors. You can read all about that in chapter 15 later this afternoon, but the effect is immediate. When David hears what has happened, it is like he finally wakes up. 
He gets up from sleep. Arise and let us flee, or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. David knows that the time is short, and now for the second time in his life, he finds himself on the run into the wilderness, into exile from his own land. And when this happens, there is a deep sense of communal grief, of national grief. The storyteller says that David weeps as he goes, that the people who leave with him, they weep too as they go. The storyteller says all of the land wept aloud. And in this weeping, there is clearly also a waking. And you can see it in the beautiful exchange between David and this guy, Ittai. Ittai is from Gath, it was the Philistine city where David was in exile, where he lived when he was in exile for the first time. 600 soldiers from that time in Gath had become loyal to David, and now they had moved to Jerusalem to serve David after he became king. Seems like Ittai may be their boss, their, their leader, and David sees Ittai and stops him, and he says, why are you going with us? David reminds him, you're already a foreigner. You're already an exile. You'll be fine if you stay in Jerusalem. Why would you want to come out here with me? Why would you want to wander around with me? Because I don't even know where we're going to end up. He tells Ittai that he and his brothers should go back. And then he invokes something, something that had animated David, something that had en enlivened David and driven him for so much of his life, but had been hidden and obscured for many long years. David says, Ittai, you should go back, and may Yahweh show steadfast love and faithfulness to you. David is in a great deal of danger, but he stops and he expresses concern for someone else. And he invokes the love of God for them. Even though it would be really helpful to have a bunch of fighters with him, he argues for Ittai's good over his own good. You know, Ittai, he, he won't have any of it, but that's not the point. The point is that a small ray of hope dawns in that moment. David, who had been so neglectful, who had caused so much pain and heartache, is not so far off as to be out of reach of the renewing grace of God. David is not too far And that's really good news, church, <laughs> for David and for me and for you too. Let me pray for us. Father, we remember uh, as we hear the story that David left Jerusalem, and as he left Jerusalem, he wept. And we remember too, like we heard in the gospel lesson, that your son entered into Jerusalem weeping weeping because he was about to enter into those last, that last week and into those moments 
that made it possible for us and the whole world to be made new again, to be forgiven and restored and changed. So Father, we ask that you would help us to be a people, that you would give us whatever it is that we need to be a people who abide in him and who remain with him, who put ourselves in the places where he can change us by the power of your spirit. Father, do this um, for our own good, so that we'll grow up and we'll mature in our faith. Do this so that we could be a people, like we heard about already this morning, who outdo one another in showing honor, who love with affection, who show hospitality. Do this, Father, so that we can be a people through whom you love the broken world. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.